We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to The Unbelievable Truth, the panel show about incredible truths and barely credible lies. I'm David Mitchell. Today we have with us Arthur Smith, Lucy Porter, Jack Dee and Lloyd Langford. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five hidden truths which their opponent should try to identify. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. First up is Arthur Smith. Arthur, your subject is rabbits. Soft-furred, large-eared, burrowing mammals with long hind legs and a short tail. Off you go, Arthur. Fingers on buzzers the rest of you. <laughs> rabbits are known, of course, of their tiny ears, their dislike of carrots and their total lack of interest in sex. But they're also renowned for their love of poetry and, of course, hip-hop music. <laughs> in Cuba... Emergency services use sniffer rabbits to search collapsed buildings for survivors and salad vegetables. <laughs> Jack? I think they were using Cuba as uh, sniffer rabbits. They were. That's yeah, absolutely that's right. That's my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's true. In 2013, the BBC reported that specially trained rabbits were being used by Cuban emergency services to detect victims that had become buried under rubble from collapsed buildings, mine shafts or underground tunnels. Well, how did they know, though? Did they sniff them and then what? Was it a wave their ears about? <laughs> I suppose so. I don't know. I mean, how did Lassie communicate the things? Well, Lassie was a dog, so she barked. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbits, rabbits don't have that advantage. <laughs> they, they, they don't. What noise do rabbits make? They, well, they don't, but you've got to know your rabbit, and they, t they twitch their nose. And that, if you, yeah. you know, twitch their, like that, twitch their nose, obviously it's radio, so they won't, uh, <laughs> you, won't appreciate what I did just then, but it's pretty good, I think, everyone. Do it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, is a, that is a rabbit saying, I, I think there's someone under this girder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> In 1700s in England, shooting a rabbit was punishable by death, and not just for the rabbit. But... <laughs> but shooting a Catholic got you a peerage. <laughs> I apologise for that joke. Uh, the highest recorded number of rabbit offspring in a single litter is 12. But in 1726, Mary Toffs from Godalming in Surrey became famous after she convinced her doctor she had given birth to 17 rabbits. Lucy. It's absolutely 100% true that Mary Toffs claimed she'd given birth to rabbits. It is absolutely 100% no, true. You knew that, you, Lucy. You sound... <laughs> You, that sounded like knowledge. She's very much one of my role models. R really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's also one of the best ever episodes of Embarrassing Body. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mary Toft of Godalming hoaxed doctors into believing she had given birth to rabbits. On the 27th of September, 1726, after suffering a miscarriage but still appearing pregnant, Tofts feigned labour and gave birth to the first rabbit. Two months later, John Howard, a Guildford <laughs> surgeon, attended the birth of the second rabbit. And after she gave birth to seven more rabbits at a rate of one a day, <laughs> Howard was convinced, and soon her fame had spread far and wide. King George I was intrigued. 
by the story, <laughs> and sent three of his own doctors, who delivered the 15th, 16th and 17th rabbits, respectively. Yeah. The final two doctors suspected a hoax. <laughs> and bloody scientific killjoys. <laughs> and on the 17th of December, Mary admitted it as such. Can I just say, I, I once hired someone like that for a children's party. <laughs> it wasn't well received. Now, when I lived in Paris as a young man, I learnt that in French, if a woman poses you a rabbit, it means she stood you up, left you waiting underneath the Arc de Triomphe for an hour and a quarter in the freezing cold. Oh, Monique, qu'est-ce qui s'est devenu de toi? Tu m'as posé un lapin. Lloyd. Yeah, I would buy that. They're, uh, they're quite well, flighty, well, aren't they, rabbits? You're absolutely right, yeah. Mm. It's, um, <laughs> yes, the French expression, poser un lapin, was originally used to refer to someone leaving without paying for something, but over time came to mean being stood up. Run, Rabbit, Run by Chaz and Dave was one of the songs covered by the heavy metal band ACDC in a legendary one-off concert in Sydney in 1981. At the same show, they also performed Waltzing Matilda and the Flower Duet from LACME. Lloyd. Did the set list include Run, Rabbit, Run by Chaz and Dave? No. Also, Run, Rabbit, Run isn't by Chaz and Dave. <laughs> <laughs> there is a Chaz and Dave song called Rabbit. Rabbit. Ah, yes. Well, but, mm. funnily enough... Uh, David Mitchell is unwilling to now sing the song Run, Rabbit, Run, Rabbit, Run, Run, Run. <laughs> Lucy. I'm very convinced that is true. It, that is true, yes. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that wasn't one of the five truths Arthur was trying to smuggle, so perhaps he was expecting more support from me. But no, no I'm, I'm unwilling to sing that. <laughs> It is illegal in Queensland, Australia, to own a pet rabbit unless you can prove you're a magician. Lloyd. That is true. It is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, did you know that? Yes, you have to be either a magician or a scientist. Yes, yeah, that's true. So you know a lot about the... <laughs> have you dealt rabbits in Queensland? I feel, I feel sad now for the rabbits that fly to Australia thinking that they're yeah. going to live with a magician, <laughs> only to be met at the airport by a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. when I flew into Australia the first time, I had a little list of things you couldn't bring in, and one of them was semen. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you, you tried to get it all out in the plane. <laughs> And what did the judge say? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is illegal in Queensland to own a pet rabbit unless you can prove the rabbit is intended for entertainment or laboratory use. And those who break the law risk a fine of $44,000 and a six-month prison sentence. Served in a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. And at the end of that round, Arthur, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that in the 1700s in England, shooting a rabbit that wasn't on your land was punishable by death. At that time, 222 crimes were likely to result in the death penalty, including cutting down a tree, going out at night with a blackened face, being in the company of gypsies for a month, <laughs> impersonating a Chelsea pensioner, writing a threatening letter or damaging Westminster Bridge. 
And that means, Arthur, you've scored one point. <laughs> OK, we turn now to Jack D. Jack, your subject is inventions. Unique machines, devices, objects or systems that have been invented by someone. Off you go, Jack. I could not be more delighted to talk about inventions as I am an inventor myself. I am the inventor of the dehumidifier, which, as the name suggests, is a humidifier. <laughs> <laughs> One great inventor was Henry VIII, believed to be the inventor of the egg cup. After seeing the pleasing effect when one of his wives' heads dropped into a basket that was slightly too small. <laughs> Arthur. I reckon maybe Henry VIII did in some way invent the egg cup. And even if he didn't, he would have just said he did. And then he did. Uh, well, he didn't. <laughs> I'm not even sure he said he did. Um, well, so he I didn't. said he did. And so did Jack. <laughs> I have an excuse, though, Arthur. Yes. <laughs> All right, he didn't. He didn't. A Roman egg cup was found in the ruins of Pompeii. I've also got the information here that collecting egg cups is called persillavi. <laughs> Good that there's a word for that, because <laughs> saves time if you've got to say it a lot. We got given two sets of egg cups as wedding presents. Well, that's borderline persillavi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a reluctant Pacillivist. Uh... <laughs> they just thought we might as well just give you two lots of everything because it's not going to last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mother of the golfer, Nick Faldo, was part of the team who invented the post-it note, which she would try out by leaving messages for her son around the house saying things like, for Christ's sake, Nick, give up golf and get a proper job. <laughs> Arthur. I love the idea that Nick Faldo's wife invented the post-it note. Well, what do you think about the idea that his mother did? <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> um, I'm afraid I don't think either person invented the post-it note. Uh, they were invented... Maybe it was his sister now, I think. Well, <laughs> the people who invented it are called Arthur Fry and Spencer Silver. The beehive hairdo was invented by Tommy Cooper. It was created because the shape means it fits perfectly under a fez. <laughs> a French inventor once presented the King of France with a piano made of pigs, which, when prodded, would squeak out a tune. <laughs> Lloyd. I reckon that sounds about right. Uh, An entirely porcine-based piano. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Well done. <laughs> Yes, it was referred to as the pig rump spike organ. It was invented by the Abbe de Bain for the notoriously sadistic 15th century king Louis XI of France. The instrument used a selection of pigs, from newly weaned piglets to fully grown boars, in order to get a rudimentary scale <laughs> of squeals. A Victorian inventor worried about violence on the streets came up with the perfect solution, an anti-garrotting cravat, ideal if you're not getting enough protection from your regular cravat, and um, which of us is? Lucy. Yep, anti-garrotting was big, so any anti-garrotting device would have been welcome. It certainly was, mm. yeah, yeah, well done. <laughs> yes, it was... Invented in 1862 in reaction to a widespread and largely unfounded panic about garrottings committed by street robbers. The anti-garrotting cravat shot spikes into the hands of anyone attempting to strangle the wearer. One could also buy an accompanying pair of anti-garrotting gloves, plus a belt that fired live ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to pull that on inside out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Among his many accomplishments, Leonardo da Vinci invented a rudimentary version of Tinder involving paintings of single Florentine ladies, which noblemen would swipe left or right along a large curtain rail. <laughs> In 1940, mammarism was invented, a technique that allows you to judge a person's character from the crinkles around their nipples. Hence the sayings, wipe that look off your chest and why the long tits? Lloyd, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm already regretting the buzz. <laughs> but, you know, they... <laughs> there are many different ways of reading a person and why not... Uh, Nipple wrinkles. Yeah, well, you're in a sense right. Um, because mammarism or breast gazing <laughs> was a thing. It was invented by Irishman Patrick Cullen, who, after working as a palm reader on Hastings Pier, <laughs> he was a palm reader, and he thought, I, I think I can judge this up a bit. Um, he reinvented himself as a chest clairvoyant. <laughs> He told his female clients it was an ancient Eastern art <laughs> which enabled him to predict their future by reading their breasts. An 18th century inventor came up with a cure for drowning which involved sticking a pair of bellows into people's bottoms and blowing tobacco smoke up their rectums, which would certainly have made being a lifeguard a lot more of a laugh. <laughs> Arthur. Maybe that was a way of reviving them or something. I mean, I'd quite like bellows of smoke up the bottom, wouldn't you, Jack? <laughs> it can be arranged. <laughs> uh, that's absolutely true, yeah. Arthur. Well done. <laughs> yes, according to the Science Museum's website, reviving a victim of drowning by injecting tobacco smoke into the rectum seems very strange to us. <laughs> to physicians in the 1700s, this approach would seem entirely rational. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it had worked, they probably would never have been able to make Baywatch. <laughs> in a case of life imitating art the inventor of the soda stream died after being shut in a cupboard and completely forgotten about <laughs> thank you Jack um, and at the end of that round Jack you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel which is that the beehive hairdo was created because the shape means it fits perfectly under a fez. The beehive hairdo, popular with women from Jackie Kennedy to Marge Simpson, was invented by Margaret Helt, a Chicago hairdresser, in 1960. According to the Chicago History Museum, Helt had wanted the hairstyle to fit under the fez hat and so used the hat's shape as an inspiration. And that means, Jack, you've scored one point. In the 18th century, the tobacco resuscitation kit was used to revive victims of drowning. Victims would revive and immediately utter the words, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Next up is Lucy Porter. Lucy, your subject is butterflies, flying insects with large, typically colorful wings and slender bodies which grow from caterpillars. Off you go, Lucy. Love is like a butterfly, an evil bastard that will rip your heart out and leave you alone and weeping. Yes, they may look pretty, but butterflies are pure evil. Butterflies are responsible for more deaths in the UK every year than chainsaws. And in 99% of chainsaw deaths, there's a butterfly operating the chainsaw. <laughs> and butterflies aren't just evil on the inside. If you look past their colourful wings, they're hideous freaks with 12,000 eyes, 5,000 teeth and one giant nostril that they use to snort up their prey. Arthur. I reckon they've got 5,000 teeth because... 
I've got a friend who does dentistry, and he tells me that he always has a lot of trouble with the butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> They're really, really small as well, so it's hard to work on them. Um, no, they don't have 5,000 teeth. Look at them. Well, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't carry a single tooth. Oh, I think caterpillars do and butterflies don't. Well, that means butterflies don't. <laughs> I, think, I think foxes do and butterflies don't. There are more horrifying facts about butterflies. They sleep hanging upside down, they seduce vulnerable women, they only live in ruined castles, they drink blood and they cannot see their own reflections in a mirror. That's right, butterflies share many of the same characteristics as Prince Andrew. <laughs> Butterflies have been observed partaking in a primitive form of gambling, exchanging pieces of food based on the results of races. The naturalist who first observed this gambling is known in the insect community as the butterfly flutter spy. Lloyd. I think butterflies do gamble. Uh, um, have you always thought that? Or... <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. Although, actually, that's a, it's a good lie, because it's the sort of thing that scientists say to make their research sound more interesting. Yep. We have noticed you know, a slug push a crumb, and they say, <laughs> slugs play football! <laughs> um, but not even... no. Um, but it's not just gambling. Butterflies also get drunk with long drinking sessions, which the butterflies refer to as getting mounted. Lloyd. I think they get buzzed on uh, nectar or something. You're get, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they do get drunk. Um, <laughs> they get drunk on the juice of rotten fruit. Well, how can you tell if a butterfly is drunk? Well, they become still stagger around or even flop to the ground, making them vulnerable to predators. But they must be always drunk, then. I mean, I've never seen a butterfly go in a straight line, ever. <laughs> so, they're alcoholics and they've been in so many fights, that's why they've got no teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists recently discovered that the female butterfly has a stomach attached to her vagina. The Very Hungry Caterpillar was rewritten to reflect this new discovery, but the new book is only stocked in specialist Soho retailers. <laughs> <laughs> City Ordinance number 259 makes it a misdemeanour to threaten a butterfly in the town of Denzel, Washington. Collecting butterfly eggs is against the law in Hannah, Montana. Jack. I think that um, one of those two previous statements is true. Do you care to plump for one or the other? <laughs> the first one, it's a misdemeanour to threaten a butterfly in the town of Denzel, Washington. <laughs> and the second one is collecting butterfly eggs is against the law in Hannah, Montana. Right, OK. <laughs> I'm now wishing I'd listened more carefully. <laughs> and uh, realised that uh, Lucy was joking when she said <laughs> those two things. But I'm a man of my word. I did buzz, so I'm going to say Hannah, Montana. No, that's not true. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Laugh at me. <laughs> the Egyptians would mummify butterflies using two pieces of loo roll and some string. The Aztecs would sacrifice butterflies by beheading them, which is much harder than it sounds. And the ancient Greeks would imprison their butterflies in giant labyrinths, presumably because jam jars hadn't been invented back then. If you've enjoyed this lecture and would like to learn more, you can, of course, find out more information about butterflies on the Butterfly Net. Oh. Yeah. Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> And at the end of that round, Lucy, you've managed to smuggle four truths Whoa. past the rest of the panel. <laughs> and they are that butterflies have 12,000 eyes. Uh, they're in sets of two compound eyes, and they can only see the colours red, green and yellow. 
seems rather a shame they don't get to admire themselves in the mirrors in which they can see themselves. <laughs> um, the second truth is that butterflies drink blood. Some butterflies have been observed drinking blood from open wounds on animals and even humans. And the third truth is that the female butterfly has a stomach attached to her vagina. Female butterflies like to mate with many males, so the male butterflies try to increase the chance that they'll be the father by delivering their sperm in a package called a spermatophore, which, apart from the sperm, contains proteins that block the female's vagina and prevents her mating with other males. <laughs> So, as soon as she's mated, the digestive enzymes in the stomach next to her vagina frantically start breaking down the proteins of the spermatophore in order to free the female to mate again as soon as possible. That's perhaps the sexiest thing you'll hear on Radio 4 today. <laughs> and the fourth truth is that the Aztecs sacrificed butterflies. And that means, Lucy, you've scored four points. <laughs> next up is Lloyd Langford. Lloyd studied film and television at the University of Warwick, and after three years of hard study, he was able to watch both films and television. <laughs> but, but, no, <laughs> but not together. That's, <clears throat> that's a PhD. <laughs> Lloyd, your subject is drugs. Chemical substances that, when inhaled, injected, smoked, consumed or absorbed via a patch on the skin, cause a temporary physiological and sometimes psychological change in the body. Off you go, Lloyd. A drug is a lot like a train to Derby, as it's something you can take to feel a lot better about yourself. <laughs> in his sonnet number 420, Shall I Compare Thee to a Long Talk on a Big Fat One?, William Shakespeare became the first person to use the word drug as a verb in the English language. Lucy. Yes, he drugged someone. I druggeth thee. <laughs> yes, he was the first one to use the word as a verb. It's Lady Macbeth in Macbeth. I have drugged their possets that death and nature do contend about them whether they live or die. So, yes, well done. Popular slang names for heroin include Naughty Bisto and Morrison's Folly. <laughs> the sweaty, glistening pallor that repeated cocaine use brings on is known as Charlie Sheen. <laughs> to illustrate the obscene wealth drug baron Pablo Escobar accumulated, the Ecuadorian army revealed that on raiding his compound, they discovered more than two dozen packets of Dutchy original ginger thins. <laughs> Each year, Escobar had to write off 10% of his cash holdings because of rats nibbling away at his huge stash of banknotes. This was also the reason why Northern Rock finally collapsed. <laughs> Cool Keith, a sniffer dog working at Heathrow Airport, had to be given early retirement after snorting so much cocaine that he spent most of his shift ignoring his handler, trying to have sex with other dogs, and endlessly barking on about himself. <laughs> Squirrels have been known to dig up crack cocaine buried by drug dealers, eat it, and become quite aggressive. This inspired Enid Blyton's 1942 classic, Chat Shit About Tufty and Get Banged. <laughs> Lucy. Yeah, squirrels dig stuff up, take it and become aggressive. I think that's true. It is true. Well done. 
Yes, in October 2005, several newspapers, including The Sun, The Mirror and The Guardian, reported that squirrels in Brixton had been observed behaving bizarrely <laughs> after digging up hidden stashes of crack cocaine. One Brixton resident told The Sun, I'd seen a squirrel digging in the flower beds. It was ill-looking and its eyes looked bloodshot, but it kept on desperately digging. <laughs> it seems a strange thing to say, but it seemed to know what it was looking for. <laughs> In the past 20 years, the world of drugs has been increasingly tainted by its association with sport. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Murray was rumoured to have taken banned muscle relaxants to enable him to attempt a smile on winning the Wimbledon men's <laughs> final. <laughs> Under Pope Pius XII, the Vatican made money from a fertility drug made from the urine of nuns. Advertised with the slogan, be a superior mother with the we of a mother superior. <laughs> Lucy. I feel the we of nuns could be used for so much. <laughs> <laughs> They're slightly magical. I mean, you're, I'm, I'm not sure about the wider implication of that remark, but in this case, you're right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the fertility drug Pergonal, Italian for of the gonads, was developed with the blessing of Pope Pius XII and several gallons of nun's urine. Its inventor, Italian scientist Piero Donini, discovered that fertility-boosting hormones were highly concentrated in postmenopausal women. It would take ten nuns ten days to produce enough urine for a single treatment. <laughs> a lot of nuns piss. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists have recently produced an antidepressant that gives you an orgasm every time you yawn, leading to very real fears that the hardcore pornography industry could be destroyed by the one show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lloyd. Uh, and at the end of that round, Lloyd, you've managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, which are that each year Escobar had to write off 10% of his cash holdings because of rats nibbling away at his huge stash of banknotes. And the, the second truth is that scientists have recently produced an antidepressant, clomipramine, that gives you an orgasm every time you yawn. One woman who took the drug told researchers it cured her depression, but she wanted to go on taking it because of its peculiar properties. She found she could experience an orgasm even by deliberate yawning. And a man who had also taken the pills said he was highly satisfied <laughs> with, with the drug's usefulness. That means, Lloyd, that you've scored two points. <laughs> Which brings us to the final scores. And in fourth place, with minus eight points, we have Arthur Smith. <laughs> in third place, with minus four points, it's Jack D. In second place, with minus one point, it's Lloyd Langford. And in first place, with an unassailable eight points, it's this week's winner, Lucy Porter. That's about it for this week. Goodbye. The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Nixmith and Graham Darden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists Arthur Smith, Lloyd Langford, Lucy Porter and Jack Dee. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and Colin Swash and the producer was Richard Turner. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.